You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, today we're debating socialism versus capitalism, and we are starting right now with our socialist guest, Dr. Ben Burgess, with his 20-minute opening statement. The floor is all yours. Thanks, Ben. All right. Thanks, James, and uh, thank you, Dr. Friedman, uh, for uh, for agreeing to this. Uh, I watched your discussion with Richard Wolff last November, and you mentioned a bit of historical trivia uh, during that debate that I'd never heard before. And now that I know it, I thoroughly enjoy knowing it. And that's that pirate ships were essentially floating worker cooperatives with the pirates electing their own captains. This is now part of my standard spiel about socialism. I'll say we need to establish workers' control of the means of production, you know, like pirates. And that, of course, uh, brings us to an annoying terminological issue uh, that we need to clear up to have an interesting debate. Uh, What does socialism even mean and how would it be different from capitalism? Capitalism, as that term has mostly been used since Louis Blanc invented in the mid-19th century, refers to a system where some people are capitalists, in other words, private owners of businesses, and they get to lord it over all of the people who have no realistic choice except to submit themselves to the rule of the first group in the workplace. At least as I use the term, socialism means an economic system where things like factories, farms, banks, grocery stores are socially owned rather than owned by capitalists. For the sake of simplicity, I'll be referring to all that stuff as the means of production, although it also includes, of course, means of extraction, means of distribution, means of exchange, and so on. So social ownership can take a few different forms. If you have political democracy so that the state is socially owned, state ownership can be one form of social ownership, but a private worker cooperative is also a form of social ownership. The important thing is that democracy has been extended into the economic sphere so that for the first time since the agricultural revolution, we can achieve human societies that aren't divided into a subservient labor force and some sort of ruling class. Historically, socialists have disagreed with one another about quite a lot. Some, for example, have thought that the best form of socialism was one where the state owned every economic enterprise. Others, going right back to the very beginnings of the socialist tradition, to people like Bakunin, uh, have actually been anarchists who didn't think there should be a state. But however much socialists have disagreed with each other about, they've all agreed that the goal should be a society with some form of social ownership so there wouldn't be a class of people who owned the means of production and a class of people who had to put themselves under the thumb of the first group in order to make a living. 
So what could feasible socialism actually look like? Well, there was the Soviet Union, of course, and other societies organized in the Soviet model in the 20th century, but there are multiple problems with that model. Most obviously, it lacked political democracy, so state ownership of the means of production didn't translate into democracy in the economy. But also, Soviet-style planning was, uh, as my friend Bhaskar Sankar describes it, all thumbs and no fingers. Very good at, at churning out tractors and tanks very quickly, and thank God for it, or else the Nazis might have won World War II, but very bad at coordinating uh, production with consumer needs, which is a big part of the reason that so many of those societies uh, either collapsed in the late 20th century or like China reformed themselves into some sort of semi-capitalist hybrid. So even if that experience is mostly a cautionary tale, we still have plenty of models of successful socialization, at least of parts of the economy. We know from the experience of many advanced Western democracies that have successfully run these experiments over the course of several decades that state planning does actually work extremely well for at least some sectors like healthcare and education, where it's perverse and socially destructive to treat these things as commodities to be bought and sold, rather than treating them as things that everyone has a right to, funded by progressive taxation and free of charge at the point of service. I would argue that the so-called commanding heights of the economy, like banking and energy, should also be state-owned, although in all cases, I'd like to combine that with some degree of uh, workers' control at the workplace level. And if we still need market competition between autonomous firms in order to produce the sort of consumer goods for which calculation problems seem to be the biggest issue, that market sector can at least be made up of worker-owned firms. And this vision can't really be objected to on the grounds that would run afoul of coordination problems or anything of the kind. We just have too much empirical evidence from too many countries that it's possible to nationalize parts of the economy without economic catastrophe. Indeed, while getting better results in important areas like healthcare uh, than uh, more pure free market systems. And we have too many examples of wildly successful worker-owned firms like the Mondragon Corporation in Spain for it to be possible to seriously argue that private firms can only function well when they're owned by individuals or partners or stockholders rather than when they're collectively owned and democratically operated by the workers themselves. Of course, I know that Dr. Friedman doesn't object to worker cooperatives when they arise within the rules of the free market. The same way, even a divine right monarchist doesn't object to a democratically elected parliament making certain decisions as long as the, ki the king chooses to convene that parliament and grants it leave to operate within those spheres. What a monarchist and a small r Republican uh, having the 18th century equivalent of this debate would really be arguing about is not parliaments ever acceptable or not, it's whether the people need the king's permission to rule themselves. By analogy, what socialists and libertarians are arguing about is property rights. In other words, whether it's okay to bring about the social ownership of the means of production by taking businesses away from their current owners in order to either bring them under state ownership or convert them into worker cooperatives. And that's the real issue. Now, you could say, if worker cooperatives work as well as I think they do, why wouldn't they just become the dominant economic form through market competition? Well, a couple of reasons. First, regular capitalist companies do have some competitive advantages over worker cooperatives, just as slave plantations had some competitive advantages 
over far farms where cotton was grown with free labor. If you're paying people poverty wages, that frees up a lot of money for new expansion. Worker cooperatives, where pay scales are decided on democratically, do still expand, but they might do so more slowly, balancing this priority in a more reasonable way with the present day well-being of existing members. That said, the existing empirical literature uh, does seem to consistently show that once worker cooperatives are founded, they last about as long on average as any other firm. In fact, they may be more efficient in some ways since elected managers don't need to crack the whip in quite the same way that managers do in firms where people are working to enrich someone else. So the problem isn't so much that they have a higher death rate than any other company. It's that they have a much lower birth rate. And that's true for at least a couple of reasons. First and most obviously, the distribution of starter capital throughout the population is wildly unequal. Working class people applying for new business loans from banks really are at a much greater risk of not being able to pay it back. Secondly, a cooperative can't reward investors with an ongoing ownership stake without, to that degree, ceasing to be a cooperative. Realistically, there's just no way the cooperative sector is ever going to become a really significant chunk of the economy, never mind swallowing up the entire private sector like I want it to, through co-ops playing within the rules of the capitalist game. In order to get what I want, and I think this takes us to the real core area of disagreement, you have to set fire to the old game board and start a new game with new rules, socialist rules, perhaps rules where the system for new firms getting their starter capitals that they get grants from nationalized banks and businesses are only eligible for those grants if they're under workers' control. So that's really the question in dispute, I think, between me and Dr. Friedman. Not a question of whether the forms that I like can exist if they arise within the rules of the capitalist game, but the question of whether we should switch to a new socialist game in which what's currently the dominant form would be consigned to the dustbin of history. I want to switch to a new game, and he wants to keep playing. In fact, he wants to play a purer form of the old game without the statist elements that currently sand off some of the existing system's most brutal edges. And that's where the pirates come back into the picture because a lot of times the way those floating worker cooperatives came into existence was when crews of regular non-pirate ships would mutiny against their old captains and take over the ship. Now, all joking aside, I don't wanna romanticize pirates too much. They made their living through violence. And uh, while I'm not an absolute pacifist, uh, for example, I think the people of Chile would have had every right to use violence to resist the fascist coup that overthrew the democratic socialist government of Salvador Allende in 1973. I certainly don't like the way that those mutinous crews had to make a living once they could no longer operate within the legal economy. But for the mutinies themselves, I have nothing but sympathy. Whether we're talking about naval ships where the mutineers were conscripts or regular merchant ships where they were essentially economic conscripts, too poor and desperate to turn down the deal, even though that deal meant they had to endure an absolutely brutal form of petty tyranny at sea. So following the thread of this imperfect but suggestive analogy, what is it that I think would justify a society-wide mutiny against capitalism, even though within this metaphor, when I say mutiny, uh, I would hope that would take the form of a peaceful and democratic transition to socialism. In other words, what's so bad about the game we're playing right now that setting fire to the board would be justifiable? Several things. Starting at the top, the most obvious surface level problem, 
uh, which is a big problem, is the grotesquely unequal way that the game we're playing right now distributes resources. Some people own multiple mansions and some people sleep under bridges. Pharma executives enrich themselves while diabetics literally die because their medical GoFundMes don't bring in enough money fast enough to buy them insulin. And if there are places in the capitalist world where those things don't happen, or at least they don't happen as much as they do in the United States, that's precisely because of statist intervention and labor union intervention to stop the game from being played in nearly as pure form as we play it here. Now, some libertarians try to claim, uh, I'm sure Dr. Friedman would be above this argument, but some libertarians will claim the left's dislike of extreme economic inequality is about jealousy. Uh, this is nonsense. Uh, the reason that, so that we don't like economic inequality are first, because at least given the backdrop of a growing economy, uh, this stuff really can be a zero sum game. Some people having more means that others have less. And if some people have so much more that others aren't having basic human needs met, that's a problem. Another problem is that economic inequality has a corrosive effect on democracy. If Jeff Bezos calls the Senator's office, uh, he will speak to the Senator. If a worker at one of Bezos's sweatshop warehouses calls the same office, she'll be lucky to speak to an intern. Some Americans are provincial enough to believe that campaign finance reform will solve this problem, but it won't. Extreme concentrations of economic power always find ways to translate themselves into concentrations of political power. The kind of socialist society that I describe wouldn't necessarily have a perfectly flat income distribution any more than you have totally flat pay scales it actually exists in co-ops like Mondragon. You can pay some people more than others for the sake of uh, incentives uh, to do more work or less desirable forms of work, or so they have incentive to acquire certain valuable technical skills, for example. But when the workforce as a whole gets to vote on the pay scales, those pay scales are way more egalitarian, comparatively speaking, than what you end up with at a regular capitalist firm. Another problem, um, is automation. Advancing technology should be good news for everyone, but under capitalism, it isn't. If a capitalist company comes into possession of labor-saving technology, meaning uh, it only takes half as many people working 40 hours a week to get the same result, they have an incentive to lay off half the workforce or cut everybody down to half time. Uh, if a worker-owned firm is in the same situation, uh, they have an incentive to vote themselves a 50% reduction in hours at the same pay, uh, especially if they're in a sea of other worker cooperatives rather than having to comp compete with regular capitalist firms. Another problem, you know, and even if you're lucky enough to end up with another job, that's still dis a lot of disruption and avoidable human misery. Another problem is alienation. If you have to spend half of your waking hours uh, five days a week, and it's only half and only five because of past worker struggles, performing tasks that you have no voice in setting and forced by managers, you have no voice in choosing, that leads to a lot of avoidable suffering and avoidable disconnect between, you know, how people are spending their time and what they have to do in order to make a living. Uh, another problem is exploitation, which is the private sector version of taxation without representation. In any system, people aren't going to get every cent of the fruits of their labor. Some of it has to go to repairing old machines and buying new ones, for example. But under capitalism, people have very little say in deciding how the fruits of their labor are divvied up. Uh, you know, uh, people uh, who did very little to create it still award them, can uh, award themselves huge slices of the pie due to their structural position of economic power as business owners. 
Another problem is regulatory capture. As long as you have a class of wealthy business owners that exert disproportionate political power, any state regulation you set up to try to stop environmental catastrophes caused by their business practices or protect workers from labor law violations or well, et cetera, is always vulnerable to being captured by exactly the interests those regulators are supposed to be policing in the first place. And that's true even given the combination of capitalism and a democratic state, Never mind the truly nightmarish thought of a anarcho-capitalist system where private enforcement agencies would only have an incentive to serve the interests of the private companies that cut their paychecks. But the biggest problem is the problem of authoritarianism. Some people think that the more cynical your view is of human nature, the more you should like capitalism and dislike socialism. That's a very popular idea, but I think it's exactly backwards. I think that the less you trust any human being to exert power over any other without abusing it the way that uh, Bezos abuses the workers in his warehouses or Harvey Weinstein abused actresses, the more reason you have to support an economic system where power is distributed as evenly as is reasonably possible. That means supporting extending democracy into the economy. Now, I know that Dr. Friedman is a consequentialist. He thinks that justice is just a matter of what promotes the best consequences, the most flourishing. Okay, well, we'll get a correction uh, when it is uh, when it is uh, is is his turn, and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll get the uh, the nuances of his version of uh, of consequentialism uh, then. Uh, and so I will I will save my objections to that view uh, for uh, for after we uh, we hear that. Uh, but here's the point. Here's the larger point, that on some forms of consequentialism, you could justify things that I would really disagree with. You know, Even if we had a subservient working class that only made up a tiny minority of the population and everyone else benefited, I would be here advocating for classless society anyway uh, for all sorts of other reasons. But in reality, what the situation that we have is a working class majority of society getting the short end of the stick on economic inequality, the short end of the stick on workplace authoritarianism, and the short end of the stick on many other forms of avoidable human misery. So I would argue that even in crudely consequentialist terms, never mind what I'm sure will be the beautifully nuanced version that we'll hear from Dr. Friedman, the crew of this particular ship has every right to mutiny. Thank you very much. We will kick it over to Dr. Friedman for his opening statement and want to remind you folks, our guests are linked in the description. I encourage you to check out our guests links so that you can read more, hear more from them. And so we will kick it over to Dr. Friedman for that 20 minute opening statement as well. Dr. Friedman, thanks for being here and the floor is all yours. Thank you. Uh, we start with a problem which I anticipated uh, correctly, and that is that neither capitalism nor socialism has an unambiguous meaning, uh, and that therefore there is the possibility that I will end up arguing for something that is not what Ben calls capitalism, and he will end up arguing something that's not what I would call socialism. Though I would have to say that what he is arguing for is closer to socialism than it could have been, so in that sense that may be less of a problem. But I thought that the simplest thing would be if I explained what I meant by the terms, he, I think, has explained it well. He hasn't really explained what the defining features of capitalism is, but he's explained what he's in favor of. And we can then see where, whether I can argue that what I am defending, my version of capitalism, is more attractive than what he is defending, his version 
uh, of, of socialism. Uh, so what is capitalism? Uh, capitalism is a system of institutions in which human actions are coordinated by voluntary exchange within a system of private property and trade. And if you look at actual modern developed societies, none of them are either capitalist or socialist. That is, all of them have a mix of institutions. Uh, that if I take the US, which is the one I know best, food and cars are primarily produced under the capitalist rules, so the government affects it a little bit. Uh, on the other hand, K through 12 schooling, uh, the military, courts and law enforcement are all socialist institutions, even though people don't usually put it that way because they are all examples. Uh, there's some private uh, schools, but most of K through 12 schooling is run by local governments. So if we think of the traditional definition of socialism as government ownership and control of the means of production, uh, which I gather is at least included in Ben's, although not it's, it's not his only thing he includes, uh, then those are socialist institutions. Uh, medical care in the US uh, is about half of it is paid for by governments and the other half is a heavily regulated uh, private industry. So it's actually a mix of the socialist and the capitalist approaches. Uh, I usually start out with the empirical evidence uh, and I'm afraid, I'm not really supposed to rebuttal at this point, so I'll, I'll continue this, but the, the empirical evidence uh, we get not by comparing a capitalist society to a socialist society, because we have neither uh, examples available to look at, but by comparing societies otherwise similar, one of which is much more socialist or much more capitalist than the other. And we have a convenient set of uh, examples of that, nice control, not quite controlled experiments, but as close as you can hope to get in this context. We have East Germany and West Germany, and it was East Germany that had to build a wall to keep its citizens from leaving. We have South Korea and North Korea, which is a similar situation where North Korea is desperately poor by comparison with South Korea. Uh, and we have perhaps most interestingly, the multiple Chinas. We have Maoist China, which you can compare to Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. All three of those were enormously more successful societies for their population. Uh, and all three of them were under physically less favorable circumstances that uh, Hong Kong had about, at least when I looked at the numbers quite a while ago, Singapore had the highest population density of any country in the world. Hong Kong, which was not a country, had 10 times that density. So China has a huge population, but it's also a huge country. So in just material terms, China should have done better. In fact, Maoist China was desperately poor, uh, had famines with tens of millions of people dying. Uh, and the other three were all relatively uh, prosperous, prosperous society. But we also have the comparison between Maoist China and post-Maoist China, that uh, when Deng was told that there was a serious problem with people running away to Hong Kong, his response was not, Let's put in more troops on the border, but what can we learn about what they're doing so we can do our system better? And the result was that although China is still not a free or a democratic country, it is somewhat less capitalist than the US, but enormously more capitalist than Maoist China. And that change resulted in an increase in per capita income of the Chinese population of well over an order of magnitude. It's probably the largest single change in human welfare as a fraction of the world's population that has ever occurred. Uh, let me go on, however, to the theoretical case. Why do I think that capitalism is a better system 
than the alternatives. Uh, all societies face what economists call the coordination problem. Uh, that in order to do anything in a moderately complicated society, you somehow have to coordinate the activities of a very, very large number of people. Uh, this classic example is to make a pencil, you need wood. To get wood, you need chainsaws. To get chainsaws, you need steel and gasoline and uh, copper for wiring and a bunch of other things. S trace all of the things down, down to their causal chains, and you're talking about probably hundreds of thousands of people coordinating their activities. Some way you have to make sure that there is enough wood uh, cut uh, for the pencils people want to make and the houses they want to make and the other things they want, furniture they want to make, enough chainsaws to cut that amount of wood and so forth. Uh, if you think about this problem seriously for a few minutes, your first conclusion must be that we're all dead and this is a dream because it's very hard to see how you could coordinate that complicated a problem and make it all fit together. And there are basically uh, two solutions to that problem, which very generally speaking, uh, one of which doesn't work. The one that doesn't work is the obvious solution. And the obvious solution is you have somebody at the top telling everybody else what to do, uh, figuring out what to do and making them do it. Uh, that is workable on a small scale. Uh, if you think about a football team, maybe, or a uh, small firm with a half a dozen employees uh, run by its, its founder and owner, but it scales very, very badly. Uh, as the hierarchy gets larger, uh, it becomes harder and harder for the person at the top to know what people at the bottom are doing uh, or what they should be doing or whether they're doing it. And you have the additional problem that it's not at all obvious in general that the person at the top has the right incentives, that he uh, wants to achieve his own objectives just like everybody else, and it's not immediately clear how you make it in his interest to do what achieves uh, the general objective. The alternative solution is decentralized control. Uh, and you can start out by imagining the easy case, which is a non-interdependent society, society where everybody sort of is, is his own little farmer out in the woods or something. And each person knows what he wants. He knows what resources he has. He controls himself. Each person therefore maximizes the sum of his benefit minus his cost. That maximizes the sum of everybody's benefit minus everybody's cost problem solved. The question is how can you get the equivalent of that neat and tidy solution in interdependent uh, society? Uh, and the answer, a complete answer to that question, I'm afraid, requires about a semester of price theory. Uh, I could offer you a book that I've written, which uh, I think is more fun than that semester, but does the same thing. But I think I can at least sketch how the market system solves that problem. Uh, and the coordination is by prices. That uh, when I want to produce something, the prices I've got to pay for my inputs reflect what I've got to pay somebody else to produce them or somebody else not to consume them if it's something I'm bidding away from a, someone who would consume it. The prices that I receive for what I sell are a measure of the value to somebody of that something. So that means that my profit is the difference between the value of what I do and the cost of doing it. And it is in my private selfish interest to, to, maximize, to maximize that that profit. Uh, none of this happens perfectly. There are a list of problems that economists generally refer to as market failure. 
a misleading term because the same problem exists in lots of contexts other than markets. But basically, they all involve situations where somebody is making a decision where either he doesn't bear most of the cost or he doesn't receive most of the benefit. And if I am making a decision where I bear the cost and other people receive the benefit, I may not make it even though benefit is larger than the cost. And if I'm making a decision where I receive the benefit and other people pay the cost, I may make it even though cost is larger than benefit. That's the underlying problem of market failure. And it's the reason that my ideal laissez-faire capitalist society works less well than a planned society run by an omnipotent, omniscient, benevolent ruler. We don't have any of those. Uh, so the, let's consider the alternative. Uh, and socialism, uh, as I generally define it, uh, I suspect what Ben is proposing is, in a sense, a mix of the two, uh, like most systems. But socialism is a system where the allocation of resources is controlled by political mechanisms. The traditional economic definition is government ownership and control of the means of production. Uh, and there are no pure socialist systems in that sense, just as there are no pure capitalist systems. Even in the Soviet Union under Stalin, there were lots of individual decisions, such as what are we going to have for dinner tonight, that were made by individuals, not by, not by the state. Uh, I think people even got to decide who they would marry, although that's clearly an important part of the means of production, since after all, your society needs people. Uh, but some systems are much more, more socialist uh, than others. Uh, let me make what I think a, a general point, uh, which is not limited to arguments about capitalism and socialism, but applies there as well. And that is that it is not legitimate in your argument to specify the outcomes. You have to specify the institutions and then show the outcomes you want will occur. So uh, for example, I don't get to specify a capitalist system where all the rich people are generous and they solve the problems of poverty by giving lots of money away, unless I can show a reason to expect that to happen. But similarly, you don't get to specify a socialist system that helps the poor. Uh, my, we know that, in fact, governments quite frequently transfer up the income scale rather than down, uh, that uh, public school, public uh, universities, state universities are heavily subsidized. And they are on the whole used by the children of the top half of the income distribution, not of the bottom half. Uh, my, the most striking example of this that I encountered was India. India has been a, an officially socialist state from the time the state of India was created. And when I visited India, my impression was that it looked to me like a socialist description of the horrors of capitalism. Uh, I gave a talk in a business school. It was inside a beautifully landscaped, forested, open area, maybe, I don't know, a half a mile aside, quarter mile aside, I didn't measure it, but something on that scale, surrounded by a high wall with barbed wire on top of it to keep out the population. Uh, and that was the actual outcome of a system that regarded itself as socialist, was run by people who call themselves socialists, uh, and nonetheless ended up with massively more inequality than say Hong Kong or Taiwan or other developed, uh, developing and developed uh, countries uh, that they didn't have, didn't have that view. Um, so the claim I'm gonna be arguing is that not that my system is perfect, 
but that a realistically imperfect version of my system uh, is superior to a realistically imperfect uh, version, version of yours. Uh, I enjoyed looking over a bunch of Ben's uh, web stuff. Uh, neither of us likes culture war very much. Uh, we have both been mistreated by Facebook. Uh, Facebook has uh, for a while told anybody who tried to link to my web page that it was inconsistent with the uh, web pages, uh, I forget the term they use, but community rules or something. Mostly people were linking to material on medieval cooking and I never quite figured out how that was inconsistent with, with the social rules of Facebook and they never told me and eventually they stopped and I gather that Ben had a somewhat similar experience. Uh, but on the other hand, when I looked at where Ben went from that, what he said is, it's a good thing if we have not only the First Amendment, but also diversity in, 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 in opinions in general. Uh, and it would therefore be better if Facebook did not try to censor opinions, a view I happen to agree with. Uh, but he then said, uh, Facebook has uh, enclosed the commons and the solution is to nationalize it. The solution is that the government should be running Facebook and all of its competitors. And it doesn't seem to have occurred to him that governments also have things they want people to say and do and believe. That indeed a government has much stronger incentives than Facebook does to try to control the conversation because much more of conversation that could happen on Facebook is relevant to Republicans and Democrats and, and progressives and all the rest of it than is relevant to people who do or don't like Facebook. And furthermore, that a government which controls all of the media has enormously more power to control things than a bunch of firms, even some very large firms, each of which controls a piece of it. Because in fact, Facebook has not enclosed the commons. If it enclosed the commons, we wouldn't be here. That the, 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 the relevant space, the equivalent of the property for growing land, includes where my blog is, where Ben's blog is, and where this debate is happening. So that what's happened is that Facebook has managed to persuade very large numbers of people that the most interesting way of communicating is to use Facebook. Uh, on the whole, I could think of better places to do it. And I, in fact, do large part, because there'll be larger part of my communicating on a, a couple of blogs. It used to be Slate Star Codex, and now it's its descendants. Uh, but where Ben would, I'm sure, be welcome and would probably even have fun. Uh, but, but, the, it, it is, you know, might be better if Facebook behaved itself better, but it strikes me as an almost classic example uh, of, of setting the fox to guard the chicken house to say that the way to have diversity of opinion is to have a monopoly state uh, control over them. Uh, and I should say we even had a little evidence on this subject uh, because there was a time when the media, as it were, large chunk of the media were in a sense under government control, that the standard rule for the FCC for quite a long time was that if you wanted a radio or a television license, you had to get it from the FCC and you, the FCC had to decide whether you were a responsible contributor to the public discussion. Uh, and if you weren't, if you were, you know, polluting the, uh, the discussion, as it were, the same kind of conversation we have now where you didn't get it. And a radio or television license was worth a great deal of money. Lyndon Johnson's fortune was made by his wife 
running television uh, in a market under regulation at a time when he was one of the most powerful people in the Senate. Uh, and if you have a multi-million dollar uh, license, you are going to be very careful not to offend the people who control it. So we actually have evidence how, of how governments that have control, partial control, fortunately, uh, behave. And that was a democratic government, just like uh, the, the, the kind that he's, that he's in favor of. Uh, let me go on to a, another bit that I thought was interesting, and it struck me in particular because it started out with a comment on a book my parents wrote, uh, Free to Choose, and he correctly quoted them or summarized them as arguing that voting with dollars made more sense than voting with votes. Uh, and he then, I, I couldn't figure out if he misunderstood them or was just criticizing progressives who were taking that argument in the wrong direction. Because he says correctly, he, he's now imagining that you're using those dollars to make companies follow policies that you approve of, to make General Mills pay higher salaries for its workers. That, that wasn't quite his example. But that was what he was implying, I think. And he correctly saw that when you decide what cereal to buy, the question of how does General Mills pay its workers is not going to be one of the major considerations. The question is going to be, do my kids like it? Does it taste good? How expensive it is? That sort of thing. That's right. But you are getting a vote on what kind of cereal General Mills makes. The vote on having on paying wages isn't going to you. The vote on paying wages is going to the workers. The worker does or doesn't accept the offer General Mills makes as opposed to alternative offers. Uh, the result of that, despite uh, socialist and liberal talk about starvation wages and living wages, as Ben may know, just at the moment, the average per capita real income in the U.S. is roughly 30 times what it was globally through most of history. So it is certainly true that it would be nice if everybody was richer than they are. But the idea that somehow the only reason people get paid money is because they starve to death is just wildly inaccurate. Uh, we know that only one or two percent of the population actually get the minimum wage, uh, that companies are hiring workers in a competitive market. And if your company treats workers very badly, it will find that in order to get workers who could otherwise go somewhere else, it'll have to pay them more. So that in fact, the voting with the dollars is happening on the consumer's side in determining what companies produce and on the producer's side in determining what terms they have to offer in order to get workers. So as Ben clearly realizes, I would argue for a much more capitalist system than we have. I don't think we've got time to go into the details. If people are curious, the second edition of my first book uh, is webbed for free as a PDF on my webpage. And in that I sketch what a society might look like in which was entirely private. Uh, in which the, all government, all useful government functions were replaced by private institutions. I think that's my 20 minutes, and I think Ben gets to rebut. You bet. Thank you very much, Dr. Friedman, for that opening statement. Want to let you know, folks, if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, we are a neutral platform hosting debates on science, religion, and politics. No matter what walk of life you are from, folks, we are thrilled to have you here. We're going to go into the rebuttals now, so I've got the timer set for you. Dr. Burgess, the floor is all yours for 10 minutes. All right. Uh, thank you, James. Uh, thank you, Dr. Freeman. Uh, so I want to, um, I think, start at the um, uh, start where I started my opening statement, uh, which was at the uh, semantic issue, which is not where I, I like to spend uh, most of my time. I, I would almost always rather prefer to argue about the things than the, than the words that we use to describe those things. 
but I do have to say, it is just not historically accurate to say that the um, that the central historical definition of socialism uh, was government ownership of the means of production. If you think this is the case, it must be very confusing that going right back to the beginning of the socialist movement in the 19th century, you had people like Proudhon, people like Bakunin, uh, you had people like Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman in the 20th century, people like uh, Peter Kropotkin, uh, people like Nestor Machno, uh, who were all anarchists uh, who considered themselves to be socialists. And in fact, historically, uh, most people who called themselves anarchists also thought of themselves as being socialists. I'm pretty sure that's still true globally. I understand in the United States, we have... Uh, you know, people who call themselves anarcho-capitalism, but, you know, this is just one of those American eccentricities. Um, so I think historically, uh, what has been meant by socialism, uh, whether people wanted it to take the form of state ownership, the form of cooperative ownership, uh, some combination of those forms, some third thing, uh, was social ownership, was not having a division of society into uh, workers and business owners, not having uh, labor be alienated from capital, which is a defining feature of uh, of capitalism. Uh, so, you know, there was a claim that we hadn't really talked about what makes capitalism uh, capitalism. It's certainly not the existence of uh, of markets, which. Uh, you know, I mean, they, they had markets in, uh, in ancient Rome. I haven't heard anybody uh, refer to the, that as a capitalist uh, society. Uh, it's the fact uh, that, the, uh, that the main form of social organization, the mode of production, uh, has been wage labor as opposed to slave labor or serf labor, you know, or as opposed to the kind of genuinely free labor that you get under socialism, uh, where people uh, don't have to submit themselves uh, to the rule of a petty tyrant in the workplace, in order to uh, in order to make a living. Um, now, I really, uh, you know, Dr. Friedman talks about capitalism as a system where human action is coordinated by uh, voluntary exchange. But just talking about voluntariness uh, is uh, is not very informative, right? I, I know that uh, Dr. Friedman is a consequentialist of some sort. I still want to hear more about that, uh, but. Uh, you know, most libertarians, you know, when they uh, they talk about, you know, voluntariness, this is like a principle for them, you know, that uh, that you have to have, you know, that you have to have voluntariness. This is the uh, non-aggression principle. And the problem, of course, with, uh, with that is it's completely vacuous, that you only know whether something, you know, whether something's voluntary when you know uh, how things should be distributed in the first place. I know that sounds like a counterintuitive thing to say, uh, but if you start thinking through the details of these kinds of in-principle libertarian views, uh, that, is the, uh, that is the problem. After all, when they say you can't initiate uh, force against another person or their property, well, what does their property mean? It can't mean against what's legally their property, or you can't say taxation is theft, because uh, you know, a certain portion of my income, legally, the IRS is, uh, is entitled to. Uh, you uh, you can't say property that just happens to be in somebody's possession because if so, recovering stolen property uh, would be morally illegitimate. And no uh, no libertarian thinks that. Uh, the only way to make sense of this is by saying that it's uh, it's it's truly voluntary if you're not initiating aggression against somebody's stake on a piece of property that they're morally entitled to. And that just brings us back to the question of what counts as a just form of distribution, which is where we should have started out instead of going through this rabbit hole of, uh, of voluntariness. 
Now, on the subject of consequentialism, uh, I'm, I'm you know, not a pure consequentialist. I worry about things like uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson's uh, example about uh, the uh, the surgeon uh, sawing up healthy patients to uh, to transplant their organs, and you know, and leading to more people living than not. As I said, uh, even if the situation we were facing was where there was a tiny subservient working class uh, enriching everybody else, I'd still be against that. Uh, but I do agree, of course, that uh, looking at the good and bad consequences of different systems and different policies is very important, uh, even if it's not uh, exhaustive. Of the, uh, of the question of what counts as a just arrangement. Uh, so Dr. Friedman uh, brings up East Germany versus West Germany, South Korea versus North Korea. Uh, South Korea, by the way, is an interesting example for me because I, I lived there for three years and, uh, and in many ways compared to the United States, it felt like a utopia uh, because uh, for example, uh, I didn't have to worry uh, about uh, about health insurance because because uh, every uh, every single person in South Korea, including people who are there on temporary work visas, uh, gets uh, national health insurance uh, like they uh, what they have in other uh, other civilized uh, civilized societies. And of course, but that said, uh, several some of these. I mean, I would argue the historical record. Uh, is a little bit more complicated. We can get into that in open discussion or Q&A, but I don't want to waste a lot of time here because uh, I don't want to divert myself uh, from, you know, taking the scant minutes that I have to defend what I actually support, to defend in something that I don't actually support. I will just say, I think some of the history is more complicated. Uh, so just to uh, just to give a small example of that, you know, if you want to talk about, uh, um, you know, the great advances made by Dengis China uh, in advancing uh, human welfare, which is certainly very real, you also have to confront the fact uh, that no society without such an outsized state role in planning the economy, despite the market elements, has made those rapid advances. Now, no society on the old Soviet model made them either, which might suggest that the, uh, the magic combination uh, is of state and private elements is closer to what exists in China. And the question that I would ask is uh, whether we can have those economic benefits without the you know, hierarchy, economic inequality, despotism, et cetera, that, that exist in, uh, in that model. Um, but uh, he also, uh, he talked about top-down planning uh, versus voluntary uh, cooperation. Uh, and, and I think that unfortunately, whereas uh, I'm, I'm not a big fan of top-down planning, uh, I like democracy uh, in both the political sphere and the, uh, and the economic one, uh, I'm afraid that, the, uh, that the, the evidence doesn't really support the idea that you can also only have uh, functional thriving economies without too much top-down planning, uh, because we look at something like uh, Walmart, you know, which has a larger internal economy than Sweden does, uh, and is entirely uh, run by top-down planning. It interacts with an external market. You could say the same thing about the Soviet Union. Uh, then, um, then it looks to me like if we don't like top-down planning, which I certainly do not, you know, I, I, I like. Uh, I like any element of planning that might have to you know, might exist to be uh, bottom up and democratic. We have to argue against that in some form other than uh, tyranny leading to, uh, to economic catastrophe because it does not. Uh, I do like what he said about not specifying uh, outcomes that you know we shouldn't just help ourselves to the assumption that things will work out in certain ways. I think that that's a good methodological principle it's as far as is humanly possible. Uh, we, should, uh, we should try to, um, 
you know, respect and, you know, obviously you have to do some extrapolation, but, you know, you should, we should try to respect the, uh, the outcomes uh, in, uh, in the real world. So I did want to uh, make a last couple of points about that in the brief amount of time uh, that I had left. So we don't just want to compare um, relatively laissez-faire systems uh, like the United States uh, with, um, you know, with, with North Korea or Stalin's Russia or what have you, you know, you also want to, or, and by the way, um, India has never not been a predominantly capitalist economy, uh, in, you know, in terms of, you know, where most people had to go to work, et cetera. Uh, but uh, you also want to include social democracies, not because social democracies uh, such as Norway, Sweden, Finland, et cetera, aren't still capitalist countries, they are, uh, but, uh, but because they do have much more significant aspects of public ownership uh, than countries uh, like uh, like the United States, uh, several of these countries, for example, have nationalized healthcare systems, which work marvelously better than what we have in the United States. If you want to talk about people fleeing from East Germany to West Germany, you also have to talk about the fact that once you've got nationalized healthcare systems in Western democracies, people like them so much. Uh, that even the conservative parties have to pretend to support them or else they would never win another election ever again. Um, now, I don't want to stop at social democracy because I think that it still has a lot of the problems that I talked about earlier. I would argue there are also pragmatic reasons not to stop at social democracy. Again, we can get into that. Uh, but uh, I, do, uh, I do want to uh, just briefly address before my time runs out uh, the uh, the two uh, the two points that Dr. Friedman made about uh, articles that I wrote uh, for uh, for for Jacobin uh, because I think it's not entirely a change of subject I think that these do this ties in to this question that we're looking at about not specifying consequences uh, so uh, take uh, the uh, take the social media case uh, that um, you know Dr. Friedman thinks that uh, that have that. Well, okay, he thinks that uh, it's not enclosing the commons because there's other stuff that's out there. I would argue that uh, that the even the literal meaning of enclosing the commons doesn't necessitate enclosing every bit of the commons. You know, the uh, the fact uh, that it's uh, it's most of what's used is enough. Uh, the uh, but uh, is enclosed by relatively few corporate you know corporations, uh, including the bit we're on right now, right, which is the uh, which is YouTube, uh, and. Um, of course, he says that uh, people choose to use these instead of the others. That's an important point. If we have time, I want to get back to that at the tail end. Uh, but um, as far as the uh, as the free speech issue, he is quite right uh, that uh, that we can look at the history. So for uh, so when the FCC uh, that he uh, that he reviles so much uh, enforced the uh, fairness doctrine. You had a much greater political diversity of uh, of ideas expressed on the public airwaves than you did afterwards. You could only have something like Clear Channel, where you have to drive hours in any direction uh, to uh, to not get exactly the same Got about, lineup. I'm going to give you oh, part my uh, James, are, you, are you speaking? You're uh, you're you're muted. Pardon my interruption. I lost track of time. I suspect that you maybe I'll give you a 30 second uh, warning and then I'll give Dr. Friedman the extra kind of time cushion as well. Sorry about that. Okay. Well, I know that uh, he went to, I believe, uh, 735. Is that right? Am I remembering that wrong? I've been um, timing it on a stopwatch and I was exactly 20 minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, I went to, to uh, I went to 
uh, 7, uh, 14. So if you were timing with the stopwatch plus what he did in between, uh, well, anyway, regardless, we're, we're just about getting up to, uh, to, to the end of the time. Uh, so, uh, so I will just, uh, I will just very quickly, um, quickly say this, uh, that, uh, that if you look at the, uh, at what happens in the actual world, uh, in the public sector in the United States, uh, free speech is doing vastly better than it is in the private sector. Dr. Friedman mentioned public universities, for example. Um, you cannot legally be fired from a public university for uh, your uh, for your political views. You could sue them, as for example, uh, when uh, when Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, tried to get Angela Davis, uh, you know, fired from the University of California. Uh, system uh, for uh, for for being a communist, uh, you know she the uh, the the court successfully uh, you know resisted that. They later came up with a different pretext that too was reversed. Uh, but this is the kind of protection that people do not have uh, in the private sector. In the private sector, uh, generally speaking, there are no protections whatsoever against uh, that sort of thing. If you brought Facebook and Twitter into public ownership. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean you'd have a monopoly, because as you point out, these do not between them make up everything. But if you brought the uh, these into public ownership, then the First Amendment uh, would legally apply to uh, to uh, to what happens in there. And historical experience tells us that that is much more effective than relying on the benevolence of private sector owners. I'd like to talk about and with dollars, but we'll have to do that during an open discussion. Thanks for your patience with me, guys. Uh, but I am able to look back at the stream, though. So that's one good thing is that it was about 13 and a half to 14 minutes or so that I've got. So we'll give uh, Dr. Friedman the same kind of flexibility on that rebuttal statement. And so, Dr. Friedman, thanks for your patience. And the floor is all yours. Sure. Uh, I don't rely on the benevolence of anybody. I rely on the selfishness of the people running Facebook who want to have lots of customers in order that they can sell advertisements. Uh, I ought to say something a little bit about the consequentialist issue because it's a common enough misunderstanding. I, I used to get accused of being a utilitarian, which I, in spite of the fact that the index entry, entry in my first book under utilitarianism is why I am not. Uh, my view is that the arguments for my consequentialist arguments are strong enough so that they imply that almost whatever your moral beliefs are, you ought to be on my side. That is, I think that market systems work much better than the alternatives. Uh, they, that I do not think that there are clean persuasive arguments that show what moral beliefs are right. In fact, I would have said that Ben demonstrated that point nicely in his brief attack on, on, on some versions of libertarian arguments, so that I agree with some of the moral intuitions that go into not initiating coercion and so forth, though I think they're overstated for reasons I've discussed in, in print for a long time. Uh, but I don't want to base my arguments on them because I have no way of persuading Ben or anybody else that they're true. Whereas I do have ways in which, given enough time, I would hope to be able to persuade Ben that he would get more of what he wants with my system uh, than with his. And I think, therefore, that's a more sensible strategy. Uh, Ben's basic proposal, if I understand it correctly, his version of socialism, is a mix of state socialism and workers' co-ops. And with regard to state socialism, he apparently believes that the American public school system is very well run, that it really does take twelve or $15,000 per pupil 
to uh, babysit kids and, and, and give them an opportunity to learn some things, uh, that the post office, of course, is well run. Uh, his basic argument seems to be that uh, he thinks that European state uh, medical systems work better than the U.S. To begin with, most of the European medical systems are not, in fact, holy state systems. Uh, Canada is and Britain is. But if you look at the other European countries, they're in fact a mix of private and public. And the U.S. is certainly not a private system. The U.S. healthcare is heavily regulated in the private section, and large parts of it are in fact public. In fact, as I'm over 65, I, my health health insurance is in part public because I get the opportunity to have to have Medicare. So we don't have that comparison. What is true. It is not true, incidentally, that the U.S. healthcare system works much worse. If you really look at those comparisons, uh, they don't show that. What is true is the U.S. healthcare system is more expensive, quite a lot more expensive. And that is an anomaly, and it's an interesting issue. And if we had more time, maybe we could discuss uh, reasons for it. But I don't think it's true that, in general, you have examples of state socialism working well. But you have examples of state socialism not working intolerably badly in contexts where it wasn't the whole system, where people had the option of doing things outside of the state system as well. And where the state system had to get its inputs by buying them on the market, it couldn't simply seize them and so forth. So I don't think state socialism is nearly as good a system as he, as he believes it is. Uh, but let me go on to the really interesting part of his proposal, uh, which is the part which is more nearly defensible. And that's the argument for, for workers' co-ops. Uh, we actually have a real world example, a much better example than Mondragon because Yugoslavia was a communist system based on workers' co-ops. It was not a democracy. Uh, and it worked significantly better, I think, than Stalinist Russia did, but significantly worse than other countries uh, using a, a, a free, market, free market system. So let me, I, I'm glad that Ben realizes that one of the weak parts of his argument is explaining why these workers' co-ops don't already dominate the market, given that they are entirely legal. Some of them exist in various contexts. And he basically has two arguments. His the first one, I should say, I answered almost 50 years ago in print in my first book. Uh, these are not new arguments, although they're still interesting arguments. The first one is you don't have the capital. Different industries, different firms vary a whole lot in how much capital it takes. That if you are a computer programmer, you for, for a good deal of programming, you can do the stuff you do with things you already own. I could do fairly high-level computer programming on my desktop. Uh, and in fact, startups do exist, and they generally do start up fairly small. Workers... Ben talks about things like slave labor and starvation and such. The per capita real income in the US, as I think I've already mentioned, is about 30 times the global average for most of history. If it's really true that workers' co-ops so are so much better, so much better that you can, that you can rouse people for the, 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 the uh, mutiny you want, surely you ought to be able to get at least a few hundred thousand or maybe a few million workers who were willing to live on what I think of as hippie standards of living, that is to say at about half their present consumption standard for a few years. And that would, I did the calculations, as I say, in Machinery or Freedom, my first book, and that would raise enough money to buy out the physical plant of many, not all, but many firms. Once you have that, presumably, since in your view, these systems work much better, 
they would be in a position to lend money to other workers who are trying to establish other workers' co-ops. So you really, it is certainly true that having people available to lend you money is useful, but I expect Mondragon can probably borrow money on the ordinary capital market. But if they don't, if your system is really a whole lot better, uh, as you seem to think it is, you ought to be seeing a whole lot of it and more and more. Second argument is, ah, but they have the disadvantage that they can't pay their workers slave, slave wages. Well, if it were really the case that the competition was paying slave wages, where do you think the workers would choose to work? That if it was really the case that your workers co-op was able to pay $20 an hour to people who are now getting $10 an hour, which I think if you look at the actual calculations for most firms, it's not very believable because profits of firms are normally not, not nearly as large as, as the wage bill. Uh, but if they could, then they ought to be able to hire away all the workers, and you would then not have a problem that, that ultimately the private firm and the workers' co-op are bidding for labor on the same market, that the workers' co-op has to pay enough to be a better deal than the, than the private firm and, and vice versa. So I don't think that that is a plausible explanation, and I think the correct explanation is that most of the time, the workers' co-op is a less satisfactory way of organizing production, can pay its workers less, uh, and does not provide benefits large enough to make up for that. And there are exceptions, which is why some workers' co-ops exist. And Ben raised the issue of Walmart, which is certainly an interesting issue, and it's a point I didn't get into. The classic work on this is the theory of the firm by Ronald Coase. If you haven't read it, you should. It's a very, it's a a famous and useful article, because his basic argument is that there are advantages to both the decentralized market and the hierarchical system, and that what a firm, what happens in the market is that a firm grows to the point where further growth would involve doing things uh, internally that it is cheaper to do on the, via the market. Uh, so I'm not going to try to go through all of that in detail. That would take quite a while. The great thing about the capitalist system is that you have a system where if a firm is larger than that, where if a firm is at the point where the disadvantages of hierarchy outweigh the advantages, uh, then it loses money and shrinks or gets replaced. If firms are smaller, they go up. But the idea that somehow the defining feature of capitalism uh, is the separation of capital and labor doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it's always been true in the existing capitalist societies that there are some people who own their own tools as well as lots of people who don't. Presumably, I don't know if Ben thinks that when I self-publish my books, which I quite routinely do now, whether I'm, am, am I functioning in a capitalist or a socialist system? I don't know because uh, I, the, the, the relevant capital, the main capital asset, I'm, it's true I'm hiring Amazon to sell the books for me. Uh, so in that sense, I'm dealing with, well, I'm not doing it as employee. I'm, I'm uh, doing it as a as a individual buying services uh, for them. Uh, so the other things, uh, Scandinavian welfare states. Uh, the Scandinavian welfare states are more. They, they have they have greater income transfers in the U.S., but they are not more socialist in other respects. I think if you actually look at Norway, Denmark, Sweden, I don't know that much about Finland, other than they seem to drink an awful lot from my one visit there, uh, that maybe they needed to keep out the frost, uh, but that, that they are in general uh, countries which have less government regulation of the economy, 
at the same time that they have uh, a generous uh, welfare welfare system. And Sweden, in fact, got rich at a time when it was one of the more laissez-faire economies in, in Europe, not one of the less. Uh, oh, since, since Ben is interested in pirates, he really ought to read Peter Leeson's book, which is called The Invisible Hook, which is not, I think, a good title, but, but it's a good book. And that actually just spends a book explaining how that system works. And it really is quite fascinating. Uh, but, and they, they, I should say the reason they were, well, part of the reason they were workers' co-ops, I think, is that in that situation, the capital asset, which was the ship, was a free good. That is, they were capturing ships. When they captured ships, they couldn't sell them because they didn't have legal ownership of them. Uh, apparently, the supply of ships was larger than the demand in terms of crews. And that meant that they didn't need to have and didn't have an investor uh, who was in a position uh, where he had to have uh, private property rights. But I want to go back to, to, to Ben's system because I want to, he's in a sense asked the question that I wanted to ask in my other debate and never did, which is essentially, am I free to practice capitalism in his system? And I think the answer is no. That if I understand him correctly, if I as a worker in a workers' co-op save up some money and I buy uh, a computer and I write a computer program, and I decide that in order for me to make money selling that computer program, I need a couple of other people. I need somebody to do publicity and to do various other things. And so I say to people, look, I'll pay you so much per, per year if you agree to work for me. Ben's position, as best I understand, is that I now get expropriated. That I am, after all, mistreating those poor workers who have agreed to work for me. Uh, I don't get to own my, my computer is now a capital asset. It's no longer just for consumption. So that should get a, get seized. And so I want to ask the question, which, which I didn't get to ask my own fault of in the previous debate, which is, is workers co-op uh, mandatory? Is it the only way people are allowed to associate? Or are we allowed to uh, obtain property the same way people in your worker co-op system obtain it. I assume the individual workers own their own cars and, and houses and things probably. Uh, and are we then allowed to use that property productively as, as a means of production? And can we make contracts with other people which uh, will which amount to, to labor contracts? I should say, if Ben thinks that America has a subservient labor class, he hasn't talked to very many uh, people in the population since uh, that does not strike me as, as how people that I observe actually act. Uh, and redistribution is not a zero-sum game. The reason it's not a zero-sum game is that it affects incentives. In the limiting case, if you tell me that every time I produce something, somebody will take it away, I won't produce things. That's the extreme case. But it is in general the case that rules for redistribution affect the amount there is to be consumed as well as who gets it. And in particular, in a society, and this is a, a problem in our society, in a society where the government can redistribute, it pays people to spend resources on trying to control the government, to make it redistribute in their favor and to keep it from redistributing against them. And that's an absolute consumption of resources. It's what we call rent-seeking. Uh, it's, it's a deadweight loss, which is why part of what I want is a society where there isn't such a mechanism. Uh, anyway, I don't want to go into in, in, into much more details. I was just trying to look at whether there's anything else on my long list of things I wanted to cover. 
uh, as, as Ben may know, there actually is an economic literature on doing decentralized socialism, uh, which was part of the calculation controversy between the wars. And it, it essentially involves the socialist uh, bureaucrats pretending to be capitalists. And the problem with that is why would they choose to when that isn't the best way of achieving their objectives? But that would be that would be another long story. I think I've just run out of time. So let's continue this uh, as an exchange. You bet. Thank you very much, Dr. Friedman. And we will jump into the open discussion section and want to let you know, folks, if you have not hit that subscribe button yet, do hit that subscribe button and that notification bell as we have many more exciting debates to come. For example, next week, you will see right here at the bottom right of your screen, we are thrilled it is the first time that we'll have a debate on the controversial topic of the death penalty. So that should be a an exciting and interesting debate. And we will go into the open conversation. So thanks so much to our guests who are linked in the description. And the floor is all yours. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so, uh, well, first of all, I, I just wanted to say that uh, the... Uh, uh, that the, the post office actually uh, is a, a magnificently uh, effective uh, institution. Uh, it's it's certainly there's there's no remote private sector equivalent for a uh, or organization. You are aware that the private sector post office is against the law. That will, we have, well, we have the express statutes which forbid. Lysander Spooner, who was a prominent 19th century anarchist, started a private post office and was shut down. Yes, uh, but if you look at more recent history than Lysander Spooner, uh, and uh, you know, you notice the existence of things like FedEx and UPS, and you know, none of these things they can do package delivery, but not will do, do anything remotely equivalent to taking a parcel from uh, for taking a letter from California to Alaska. They are not allowed to. They are allowed to take a parcel from California to Alaska, and they do. I've used both yes, the post but they, office, but they, but they, but, yes. but they don't do it, and would have, as you, uh, you know, to uh, to use a metric that you rightly uh, emphasize, would have no incentive to do it at anything like as cheaply as uh, as the post office uh, does it. With I don't, like I don't observe that the post service to uh, to to out of the way rural areas. Uh, yeah, the, the post office is a magnificent success story uh, for uh, for. Uh, Why do you think that people who choose to live places that are far away ought to be subsidized to the expense of people who don't? It's certainly possible. I do not know. I think I don't think UPS actually does discriminate in its package prices by how far away you live, but they could. But I don't see anything particularly wrong with it if you choose to. Uh, live your life in a way that imposes costs on other people if you want to get your mail then it's perfectly appropriate you should pay a you know 20 cents instead of 10 cents for your for your okay, letter. but, 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 but you now, don't seem to realize but, but, but that first class mail is illegal now, for private firms switch the goalposts from the private sector would in fact provide the equivalent the, the private sector is competing well, with to the uh, to to the entirely different claim that it's okay if we had only the private sector equivalents it would be okay if they didn't provide that service because it's not one that people should expect which I, I i take it is conceding the central point the, no the, the 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 private post office where the private competitors where they are allowed to compete with the post office compete with it and provide services that at least in my experience are at least as good and as reasonable a price you are correct that a private post office might choose higher prices 
for sending mail to more remote places, although I think the evidence of their current package delivery prices suggests that they aren't, that, they aren't, that that's more trouble than it's worth. But I object to the idea that it is somehow immoral for somebody who chooses to live someplace where the, post, where the postman has to spend an hour to get to him to pay a higher price for receiving mail than someone who lives someplace convenient. It seems to be perfectly reasonable that individuals should bear the costs of their decisions. Okay, but if we're interested in outcomes, then this is an extremely good outcome that you get with the public post office uh, that I think that you've granted, we would in all probability not get uh, from uh, from uh, from getting, a private post getting, office. Getting, getting mail in Alaska for 50 cents instead of 80 cents is not an extremely good outcome. Okay. It's a mildly it, desirable it, outcome for people in Alaska and an undesirable outcome for the people who are paying for it. If you, if you believe trans, that transferring a dollar private sector equivalents would put to as many distribution centers and as many out of the way places, and that any price difference would only be a matter of 50 cents to 80 cents, all I can say is that I am deeply skeptical of that. And I think that the history of privatizations in the real world does not support that. The it's your view in general that cross subsidies are somehow virtuous. That if if I choose to do things such that make so that make delivering a service to me more expensive, it is wrong for me to have to pay a higher price for it. My view is that it's extremely good that we live in a society uh, where we have an institution that guarantees that we can get low cost mail delivery across the entirety. Of, uh, of the society, and that I am not at all confident that you would have that extremely good outcome. In fact, uh, I, I think it's very strange to think that you would have that outcome in a society without a public And, and it's very strange to think that in a market where the socialist institution has made it illegal for private firms to compete, that you can then judge what you would have with private firms, especially when we can observe the part of the market where private firms are allowed to compete and we observe that in that area, they do in fact uh, do, do, do the job. But I wanna go back actually to the more interesting question, which is your defense of the view that the shortage of workers co-ops in the, in the present society is, is evidence they don't work for. Well, and I wanted to say one thing which I had wanted, which I didn't say to your, in my previous debate and should have. And that is by your predecessor's account Mondragon is the most striking example of his team that he that he mentioned of a successful workers' co-op. By his account, Mondragon is the sixth largest firm in Spain. So mm -hmm. the this is such a so much better a way of organizing things that the very best example in the world. Yeah, give, is the given, given the oh, given the incredibly high barriers that happen to organize worker cooperatives with so what are the tell me about the incredibly the high barriers the fact that madrigan could grow to that size is an yes. astonishing success story so uh, i talked about several of them in my opening statement you seem to have two responses so one of them is that you uh, that starting a new business takes uh, different amounts of capital uh, in different areas which is undeniably true although i'm having trouble seeing the relevance because uh, if we're talking about proportions of the economy, then if there are because then all the low all the low capital versions ought to be workers' co-ops already. If, there's, if there are uh, if there are lots of places uh, where it's fairly low, lots where it's higher, uh, then it stands to, uh, it stands to reason that that is something uh, that would uh, that would drive it down uh, overall, especially uh, given uh, the, the structural uh, the structural problem. 
uh, about uh, investment uh, that we discussed, and it seemed, and uh, you talked about how uh, if uh, worker cooperatives can uh, can have more egalitarian pay scales. Uh, workers uh, would choose to uh, to work there, but of course, uh, this assumes an economy where you have a big worker cooperative sector. No, it does because Doesn't that if you be have, big. Because, the first because, workers co-op can do it too. Because because my entire contention is that uh, you in in terms of this area uh, is that structurally playing on the rules of the free market game uh, that there are uh, that it is much easier to organize a traditional capitalist firm uh, than to organize uh, than to, to organize a worker co-op. Now, your claim I, is that the I workers co-op is much more attractive. That you disagree with that, but they have a, but if you're trying to argue against my position, just saying that, oh, people aren't choosing to, uh, to go uh, work uh, at this uh, largely non-existent a worker cooperative sector uh, doesn't do that much. Now, if we had government policy uh, to create a massive worker cooperative sector, then you could have a real test of this. Uh, but of, of course, of course, course, course created. Well, because of all of the impediments uh, that I'm talking about, you're you haven't given any impediments. Well, I, it is I am, perfectly legal to have a workers' co-op. Three or four, I think. I it think it's perfectly legal to have a workers' co-op. Yes, it is perfectly legal. To raise its own capital, just like anybody else. If it's really a much better system, to say really a much better system, then the workers should be willing to provide. There are no structural impediments to it. There can be plenty of structural impediments to something that's not illegal. I gave you several earlier. You're so. You uh, you granted uh, that uh, that investment uh, was an obvious structural impediment, uh, an obvious structural advantage of uh, traditional capitalist firms over worker cooperatives. You granted uh, that there are areas of the economy uh, where you need more starter capital, and so that's an impediment. Uh, your only other an impediment. There are areas where you need less than, starter capital. Other than what you other than what you just if said. If A is bigger than B, then B is less than A, right? That, that, that I only response that I heard. Uh, was that um, was that well? If you had uh, large numbers of people willing to cut their consumption in half, uh, which is I, I find frankly bizarre, given that we're already talking about a country uh, where you have the people that we're talking about uh, are already in a great many cases living paycheck to paycheck. You mentioned how uh, how what a small percentage of people uh, earlier earn the exact minimum wage, uh, which is very misleading because uh, even, even increasing it to uh, $15 would still be a wage raise uh, for something like 42, uh, 43% uh, of, uh, of, of the workforce. Never mind if wages had kept pace with productivity, in which case we'd be talking about about $25 an hour uh, as, uh, as, the, uh, as, as the minimum wage. So in a society where this isn't true, in a society uh, where as more and more you, things- You keep ignoring the fact. You don't, you don't have to do all the whole economy at once. To financial stress. In the order idea, to do the whole economy at once, you need you the government. That, that it's reasonable. You know, if, oh, if, if the workers people just really- their already inadequate consumption for a few years to get this going, I think is not plausible or realistic. You're, you're ignoring the fact that in a e economy and a society which varies a whole lot, if you were right, then those parts of the economy where it's easiest to do, and those are going to be parts of the economy where people are not at very, very low wages and where you don't need huge amounts of capital, then you would see all of those turning into workers' co-ops. 
Those workers' co-ops could then, if they were persuaded of any of your ideas, invest in other things becoming workers' co-ops. And you would eventually get it all. And in, a workers' co-op is not unable to borrow capital. Uh, a workers' co-op under your institutions is unable to borrow capital and, and share ownership. It can still borrow. There's no reason why a workers' co-op can't put out bonds, agree to pay things under the capitalist system where contracts are enforced against them, just like against anybody else. Uh, they could, if necessary, pledge some of their capital goods as security for those bonds. So it is true that a workers' co-op has lacks one mechanism for raising capital that a private firm has, namely selling stock. Not all firms do sell stock, however. Uh, and a workers' co-op has the advantage, if you're right, that the workers ought to be enthusiastic, some of the workers, enough workers should be enthusiastic about it, willing to cut their consumption or mortgage their house or do other things to, to raise it. And you have to explain why virtually none of that happens. Well, again, I don't think it's surprising that in a neoliberal hellscape where most people are living under economic precarity, uh, that you don't get, uh, that you don't- 30 times. That you don't 30 get times what most people lived on through most of history. Yes, That's your economic precarity. I, I, I find it baffling uh, what it is that you think uh, that that uh, that that stat is, uh, is is supposed to show. Uh, you have a variety uh, of uh, of places uh, in the uh, in the in the world today. Uh, some of which, uh, by the way, very much included Scandinavia. This idea that there's less that Scandinavia is less laissez-faire is uh, is 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 largely false. Uh, but uh, they have a uh, but uh, when um, the, where you have uh, consumption greater than the global average uh, for uh, you know for 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 most uh, for most of history. Uh, but if the if the argument we were having was which is better, uh, keeping capitalism or regressing to feudalism, then comparison uh, to uh, to what existed for uh, for, for most of history would, would would be relevant. Since the argument that we're actually having is is it better to stay with capitalism um, or to move forward to democratic? I'm sorry that you have not followed the argument. The majority of the argument we're having is not relevant. Yes, for the majority of human history, uh, you know, most people uh, had. Um, you know, we're, we're living under... The argument we are having at the moment is whether the lack of workers' co-ops in a modern society is evidence against your idea of workers' co-ops. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that last part. The argument we're having at the moment, you're completely missing the argument. The argument we're having at the moment is whether you can dismiss the lack of workers' co-ops as evidence on the grounds that workers couldn't possibly raise the capital to start their own firms. And from that standpoint, it is relevant that current consumption levels are enormously higher than what people lived on in the, in the past. And that therefore people who are really dedicated to and willing to suffer for a few years in order to get a much better system, could many of them raise the money? So, for, so you so, already so, pointed out they could borrow money just but like- but, 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 Well, okay, but first of all, they borrow, you know, borrowing money uh, is very far from dispositive in this case uh, because that was one of the first things that that I addressed. That this is actually something that the uh, uneven distribution of starter capital is uh, is very relevant to uh, because they borrow uh, money on this, bonds. They can't this, borrow money on stock. No, I'm, I'm not talking about selling stock at this point. You know, even before I made the point about selling stock in the opening statement, pointed out that in applying for loans. Uh, most working class people really are a, a much bigger risk 
uh, for not being able to repay uh, than uh, than people who uh, who start out uh, with money. If we're talking about the question of whether or not it is the case uh, that it is uh, that that it's that it's a realistic expectation that the way that people would choose to transition to this. Uh, would be to cut their consumption in half, uh, which, by the way, I, I just want to briefly point out, is actually a disguised form of the voting with their dollars argument. Uh, but uh, so I, I hope we get into that too. Uh, but uh, that if you're talking about whether that's a realistic expectation, the fact uh, that present consumption is much greater than consumption at earlier points in human history is sublimely irrelevant because for it to be relevant, uh, it would have to be the case that earlier in human history, uh, most people uh, would uh, would have been in a reasonable position to do that. If you're not making that claim, uh, I don't see uh, what it uh, what it has to uh, what it has to do with anything. Sorry that, I'm sorry that you do not follow the argument. Let me go back to a point that I wanted to get your response to that I made in sure. my, in my I think I followed it, but that's that, 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 that I made in my inference and that sense. is am I allowed to practice capitalism? Uh, so, to... so you, uh, so you're presenting this. Uh, so, first of all, let me, uh, you know, let, let me get, you know, so there's, there's no doubt or, or ambiguity about whether I'm giving you a clear answer. Uh, I think that there are people like uh, David Schweikart, for example, uh, in his, uh, in his book After Capitalism, uh, who would say, well, uh, if you have an economy where the dominant form uh, is not uh, is not wage labor, uh, then uh, then any wage labor that crops up in that sense would be truly voluntary in a sense that it would not be uh, right now. Uh, so that would be fine. But I am perfectly comfortable, uh, but you know, saying uh, that the uh, that uh, it's uh, it's not the um, that uh, just as uh, you know. All civilized societies uh, stop people uh, from uh, from either paying below the minimum wage, either by the Scandinavian method through incredibly strong labor unions uh, with with vastly more favorable labor laws, uh, or uh, by the uh, by the American method and having minimum wage laws. Uh, just like we stop people from having employment contracts in, in your where, system, where, 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 where you go under the minimum wage, just as we have sexual harassment laws to stop people from having, uh, you know, from having labor contracts uh, that include you have to accept the sexual attention of the bosses. In, in your we, system, we, my we, employees we, all have the option that, that we could legally prevent costs. people from having labor contracts, from being, from being economically coerced uh, into accepting labor contracts. So in, in uh, my they're, system, they're, they're, they're giving up their, their, their democratic during your last statement the uh, uh, you know the uh, obviously this doesn't apply uh, to uh, to part-time labor a few people working part-time anything like question. that you can have, uh, you have you can have you can have I'm sure it would be imperfect and I'm sure there'll be gray areas but it would still be vastly better than what we you're have in, you're in your system so any employee who agrees to work for me is doing it because he prefers that to the alternative of your workers co-ops so I am not exploiting him or imposing things and you're simply trying to evade the fact that your I'm system not evaded it. I'm giving you an answer you don't like. I, no. I, I, I mean, I, no, I think it's, it's not a good sign. Give me an attempt to defend process the answer that, 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 this that without, without being evasion. 
so I, I think that the reason uh, one, one to, sec, but just to, just because there was a, you had unpacked a lot of points, Ben, and so um, just in regards to those, just to be sure yeah, that I thought I was struggling to answer one question without being cut off. Right. It's well, true; it's been lively. But no, he he stated that I'm not allowed to practice capitalism in his system. Although there are some other socialists who would say that I would. Isn't that a correct statement of your what you said? So the uh, the distinction uh, the distinction is if it was uh, if you didn't have economic pressure to accept such labor contracts why disallow them uh, and uh, one uh, one possible answer to that is to say that if you have um, it's the same reason for disallowing labor contracts for sub-minimum wage labor, accepting sexual harassment, et cetera, which is that the concern would be that if you did allow them, uh, that, uh, that it wouldn't stay voluntary uh, for, uh, for, very, uh, for very long. That if you have a, uh, because uh, once, you, uh, once you reintroduce it, you've reintroduced exactly the same structural uh, you know, advantages uh, that we were, we were talking about uh, earlier. I know that for some reason that's a mystery to me, uh, you think that uh, that the comparison to previous human societies consumption standards means that it must be the case that it would be reasonable or realistic to ask people uh, who are living economically precarious lives now to go down to half of their current consumption. Um, but I, I have to say, I don't find that very that Some of the people who are presently living the lives they are living would be willing to cut their consumption sharply for a few years in order to get a much better life. Because people do that already. People who, who, who go to college and scrimp in order to do that. Uh, lots of people do indeed choose to cut consumption when they need the money for something important. And similarly, I'm not arguing everybody could do it. I'm not arguing the most poor, the poorest people, your economically precarious people. I'm saying if you really have a better system, then that system ought to attract people away from this system. And the fact that you are unwilling to allow your system to compete, that even if your system is the norm, your view is that mine has to be suppressed, makes it clear that you are not willing to face the actual choices people are willing to make. Anytime they make a choice you disapprove of, now that's economic coercion. That's just ordinary coercion. And give you a, a quick response, right. Ben, before we go into the, the closings. But uh, we're basically at the 20 minute mark. So like a, like a really quick one, if it's all right. Sure. Uh, the, uh, so again, I'll, I'll just, I'll just say one, uh, this is the vote for your dollars argument. In fact, this is the exact form of the vote for your dollars argument. Vote with your dollars argument. The Dr. Friedman disowned is irrelevant to the sense in which it's true earlier is exactly the one that he's advancing now. Uh, and, uh, and second, I would ask him, uh, whether uh, and why, if he would see a disanalogy uh, between uh, the uh, undemocratic labor contract prohibition and the subminimum wage labor co contract prohibition or the sexual harassment prohibition, labor contract uh, prohibition, because to my mind, the questions of coerciveness or non-coerciveness are the same in all three cases. Gotcha. And so we will jump into those closing statements. So i uh, suspecting you'll hear the answers to those questions that uh, have been un unanswered from either of the debaters during the closing statement. And so we are going to give each person five minutes for their closing statement, and then we'll be going to Q&A. So if you happen to have a question, feel free to fire it into the old live chat. And so thanks, gentlemen. That was lively. And also want to remind you, folks, our guests are linked in the description. And so we really appreciate our guests. We encourage you 
You must love this topic if you're here, so you can learn and read and hear more by clicking on our guest links in the description. And so with that, we'll kick it over to Ben for his five-minute opening statement. Ben, the floor is all yours. Yeah, so uh, if we're interested in the consequences of, uh, of, different, uh, of different economic systems, uh, then that's something I've, I've mentioned a few times, uh, but is, is worth uh, underlining and circling now is that you want to look at uh, you want to look at the consequences uh, not only of the United States and the Soviet Union or these other examples. You want to look at the consequences of relatively laissez-faire forms of capitalism versus social democratic systems that have created the most livable societies humans have thus far devised uh, by doing things like. Uh, nationalizing, uh, nationalizing healthcare uh, as uh, as exists is the predominant, at least, form of healthcare uh, in uh, in most uh, in most Scandinavian societies, uh, having sectoral bargaining, etc., uh, and then see how you can build on that by transitioning to an entirely new system. You also want to look at the comparative consequences of working uh, at uh, capitalist corporations uh, versus working. Uh, at uh, at worker uh, at worker owned firms, uh, firms like Mondragon uh, have, for example, a vastly lower level of uh, of economic inequality. Uh, but uh, what I really want to to close by getting back to uh, is uh, is what Dr. Friedman uh, you know mentioned at the uh, at the beginning of his opening statement because uh, you know because I'm you know. When I'm arguing for a society that would take the elements that have been successfully beta tested uh, in uh, in nationalized industries uh, within uh, within functioning democratic governments and also within uh, internally democratic worker cooperatives, we look at what worked in social democracies. We looked at what works uh, in Mondragon, for example, and we say, okay, how could we combine these elements to create? a fully socialist society that for the first time since the agricultural revolution wouldn't be uh, divided into a, a subservient workforce and a ruling class. I know Dr. Friedman uh, doesn't regard uh, doesn't regard uh, employment relations in the United States as being characterized by subservience. All I can say is that I find that incredible. Uh, we're talking about a country where people re routinely stay in jobs that they hate because they're afraid of losing their health insurance, uh, where um, you have the proportion of people who say that they would love to join a union is many times higher than the proportion who are, uh, where employees at Amazon pee into bottles uh, because they're worried about not making quotas enforced by omnipresent electronic uh, surveillance. Uh, that seems pretty bad to me. Now, why don't people just transition to a better form of society uh, by uh, voluntarily having already an adequate consumption uh, for, uh, you know, for, uh, for a few years. And this is where I would point people to uh, the, um, the Jacobin article that he mentioned, voting with your dollars is an anti-democratic illusion. Uh, I like that Dr. Friedman conceded that voting, for, uh, voting with your dollars is good for getting the kind of breakfast cereal you want. It's not good for changing the wage policies at uh, the, uh, this, the cereal company. Uh, so for example, two thirds of the population in the United States support a $15 minimum wage. No amount of voting with your dollars at the grocery store is going to, uh, is going to get you that. Uh, and, uh, and I think that in, um, 
that this argument about how, oh, if this were really great, then you would expect uh, people to start voluntarily having their consumption for a few years to achieve it, is just an extreme form of the very version of the voting with your dollars argument that he disowns, the version that says that you can use this not only to get the products that you like, uh, but uh, to achieve broader forms of social change. We agree that that won't work. So the real question is, can we do the things that will work? And I think both in terms of consequentialism and any more plausible moral theory, we can and we absolutely should. Thank you very much. We'll very jump good. into the five minute closing statement from Dr. Friedman as well. And so the floor is all yours, Dr. Friedman. Thanks so sure. much. I don't want to discuss state socialism because if I understand Ben correctly, he agrees that the full-scale version of that was a disaster. He's arguing for partial versions. He thinks they work well. I think they don't. That could be an interesting argument, but it's less interesting than the argument I'd like to have, which is out about the workers' co-ops part of his, of, of his thesis. And the response, the first response I have is that if that really is a better way of organizing things, if it can produce goods as good and as cheaply and provide as good terms, at least as good terms or better terms for the workers, then you ought to see a whole lot of it. Indeed, you ought, it ought to be the dominant form as it is a, a legal form in this economy. And Ben's argument seems to be that workers' co-ops don't have access to the capital market. That isn't true. If you start a firm that is organized as a workers' co-op, which is perfectly legal, it can sell bonds, and since it's using the money to buy capital assets, it can use some of those capital assets as security for those bonds. It can't sell stock because that would dilute ownership, which isn't part of his, his system. It has the additional ability that it can borrow money from the workers to the extent that the workers care about it. His miss, he missed half of my voting with dollars point which is that the person who votes with dollars on what General Mills makes is the consumer. And the person who votes with dollars on General Mills employment policy is the worker. That is to say, General Mills has got to find people who would rather work for them than for anybody else. We have a competitive labor market, which is why very large numbers of people are paid more than the minimum wage. I don't think that it's because the firms do it out of the goodness of their heart. Uh, and so, the workers' co-ops would be competing for labor in the same market, and if they can offer somewhat better terms to workers, which he claims much better terms to workers because of all the money they're saving through not having to pay uh, bosses, then you would expect that they would be common, especially common in fields that have relatively low capital uh, to, labor, uh, to labor ratios, and they ought to spread and become very common. And I observe, this is the, in a sense the, the telling point, that Ben is not willing to let his system face competition, that he, he wants to have the government first seize all the property and then forbid anybody else from organizing their relations the way they want to. Uh, I can, in the market system, I don't get to enslave people. I don't, in his, well, his system doesn't, although state socialism does, but, but in the market system, uh, the only way I'm going to be able to get those workers to work for my firm, my little tiny firm when it starts, is if I can offer them terms they like better than what they would get by joining a workers' co-op. And if he's not willing to face that, that means he is not, in fact, willing to accept the choices that individual consumers and workers would make. Uh, that, again, the it isn't 
the point is not that the workers would form the workers' co-op because they want a socialist society. The point is that the workers would want, would would form a workers' co-op. He's right because they like to be paid better under 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 more desirable circumstances. That's a private good, not a public good. It's not a public change. The change to the system he wants would be a side effect of individual workers acting in their own interest, just like individual consumers do. And they are voting with their dollars in this, in, or with their hours, if you want to put it that way, but it's the same thing by what jobs they are willing to take. And the fact that he believes pretty clearly, I assume he believes, maybe he'll change his mind at this point, uh, that in his system, people might still do that and shouldn't be allowed to because he knows that they're making the wrong decision seems to me pretty clear evidence that he, is, he suspects the system doesn't work very well. Workers' co-ops have some advantages, but they have some fairly sizable disadvantages, which is why they're uncommon. Uh, they are less able to hire labor because when you hire labor, you are in effect diluting your ownership in the workers' co-op, which the workers have. That was one of the problems the Yugoslavs had with their workers' co-ops. Uh, they're a little bit less able to uh, attract capital because they can't offer ownership, but they can, as I say, borrow, borrow capital ordinarily. Uh, but in general, uh, there are reasons why my, my favorite system is, 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 is the pure market one. That's what I'm doing as a self-publishing author. Uh, but for reasons Coase pointed out, that doesn't always work well. And there are some enterprises which require coordination through some sort of hierarchy. Uh, and doing it as a hierarchy elected, if it really worked better, we'd see a whole lot more of it. Uh, my father told me a long time ago that you should not persuade, expect to persuade anybody in one argument. The function of an argument is to give somebody ideas which he may later persuade himself. So I hope I will have a chance to talk to Ben in a year or so and see whether he has modified any of his views. Thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And we will jump into the question and answer Thanks, everybody, for your questions. I want to remind you, folks, if you have not checked out our podcast, we are on podcast, and so highly encourage you to pull out your favorite podcast app and find us as we've been excited that people have been downloading, and so that's encouraging and want to let you know if you're listening via podcast. You can also find our guest links there in the description box for the podcast as well, and we highly encourage you to check out their links. And we'll jump into it with this first question from Jamie Russell, who says, what motivates productivity of the people if they cannot build their own business independently with agreed upon wages with laborers? I think that's for Dr. Ben. Got to be for Ben. Yeah, uh, I, I guess so. The uh, so is if the uh, the questioner's claim uh, is that you the, that you can only get productivity that the only thing that motivates people uh, is uh, is having the ability to uh, to be a, uh, to be a boss, that that's it. Uh, then, uh, then I think, uh, then I think they would find the world in which we live uh, deeply confusing, uh, because because uh, most people uh, are uh, are motivated, uh, you know, to work, even knowing that most of them uh, will uh, will not uh, not be able to uh, to do that. You have a certain percentage of the population uh, that will uh, that will try to do that, uh, but. Uh, but you also have uh, have massive uh, have massive chunks of the uh, of the population uh, who don't. You have uh, in in places uh, like uh, the Basque Country uh, in Spain. Uh, you know you have uh, you have plenty of people who are motivated uh, to uh, to work 
uh, at Mondragon, uh, the, uh, the Italian examples, you know, that are similar, et cetera, included lots of technological uh, innovation, uh, you know, that, uh, that, happened, uh, that happened in those places. So I'd just say that, the, uh, that I'd, I'd reject the premise of the question. Let me comment on the question too, that many people will work for other purposes, but there will be some people who have an idea who say, here is a way we could do something that's not being done. And it is going to be a good deal harder for them to, do, to, to achieve that if the only way of doing it is to talk a 500 or 1,000 other members of their workers co-ops into trying their idea than if they also have the option as they do. I mean, they, could, they can do the equivalent of that in our system by talking a firm into it, but that, they, that your system rules out the option of saying, I'm willing to bet on my idea, I'm going to start a little firm. If I'm really lucky, I'm going to end up as a Bill Gates or something. Maybe I won't. But you think about how restaurants are started and things of that sort, which are on a much smaller scale. Those are a case where somebody thinks he's got something he wants to do and he can do it. He can't do it all by himself. He's got to hire people. And in your system, he does not have that option. Next up. Uh, this, you, you, you still have the option of, uh, of, of starting a small firm. Uh, you just have to give the other people who work for, for full firm full time uh, the uh, the vote. So if you're uh, if your dream is to have a particular kind of restaurant, you can do that. If your particular dream is to have the, for that particular kind of restaurant and be a tyrant within its internal structure, then I have bad news for you. And if your dream is to have a particular kind of restaurant under your system, as soon as you've hired two people, those people can then change what kind of restaurant it is because you don't own it, even though it was your idea that you, that you created. That's yeah. If, if the, uh, if, if you think that, uh, that having two people convinced that you have a good idea is an impossible bar, then yes, I guess they would be out of luck in this. Case. No, no, they have to stay convinced and you've got to make sure that everybody else you hire is convinced because they can always take it away from you if they want in your system, as long as they can get a majority. I'll give you a, a pithy response if you want, Ben, and then we've got to go to the next question. But, it is a disadvantage of democracy over dictatorship that uh, that you know that you have that you have the danger of being overruled. Still, unfathomably better for human welfare. It's not a dictatorship because the other people don't have to keep working for you. So it's uh, so a uh, a dictatorship that allows emigration is not dictatorship. In the the system of government by which restaurants are currently want, run. Forget about the employees. Just think about the customers for a moment. Is, if you wish, a competitive dictatorship. That is to say, I have no vote on what's on the menu and an absolute vote on which restaurant I go to and what I buy there. And that is a system which empirically works enormously better than having a population vote on what we should have for dinner. And, of course. Really? Uh, Super pithy. Now we've got to go to the next one. Go to the next question, right? If if you think if you think that uh, the go to the next question, we'll, we'll get out of control this, that a boss um, has over your we'll, life. We'll give you the equivalent that exit would be good enough, but just as most people would prefer having democracy uh, within a country to having a system of dictatorships that they can freely move around between. Okay, we must go to the next question. It's I need pithy. I hate to jump in on you, but. Uh, next one from Brathwaite says, people never get the definitions correct. In Marxism, the worker owns the right to the value of the goods they produce, not the financer. I, 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 I guess I don't quite get what that's directed against. I don't think it's a question. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, I wasn't exactly sure what the point was either. But Brenton Langle, uh, we have confidence. Uh, good to see you, Brenton, says China's 
famines were not due to socialism. They were due to the CCP believing USSR propaganda about Trofim Lysenko's ineffective farming practices. I don't, I don't think that's in fact the case. The big famine was the Great Leap Forward famine, and that was one. Uh, in, the, in the case of the Soviet Union, during the Ukraine famine, the Soviet Union was exporting wheat. It was, in fact, if you, were, if you believe their statistics, exporting an amount of wheat that would have fed everybody who starved. I think it was also true of China as well, though I am not positive, that it, what was happening in, in, in China was not uh, Lysenkoism. They, they did lots of stupid things, like killing all the sparrows when they thought sparrows were a problem. But basically what happened was that it was a system that was producing much less food than the local officials said it was producing because every local official had an incentive to lie and make it look as though he was doing well. Therefore, they had goods to export and Mao wanted the foreign currency for things that they needed to buy. And in that system, the workers didn't have the option of refusing. It was a slave system. Uh, and the eventually about 30 million people starved. Uh, so I don't think it had anything to do with Lysenko, although that certainly didn't, didn't, didn't help anything. And in general, Mao was not an admirer of Stalin, I should say. One of the things that people tend to get wrong, which Kosa's final book, which is a very interesting book, was on how China went capitalist. And one of the points he makes was that Mao did not believe in centralized authority. He believed in a decentralized version of socialism, although it was decentralized to the level of very large units still. And and that what actually happened in China under Mao was that it was going back and forth between failed versions of decentralist, at which point they switched back to more centralist, and then failed versions of central. Very interesting book, incidentally. Um, uh, Thank you. I, I, think, I think I could do this in about three sentences. The Great Leap Forward happened because of a lack of democracy. There's no way they would have stuck with that policy if the peasants could vote Mao out of office, which goes to why democracy and not just freedom of exit is important. I like it so much. I want it in the economy. Next up. Thank you very much for your question. Anti-Kathira says, I think they're saying FB, if they mean Facebook, FB product is user's attention sold to advertisers. Okay. Yep. Facebook. Um, Burgess, Dr. Burgess, in your, in our cognitive system, our, Nope. Okay. Sorry, guys. I butchered You're that You're saying one. that the Antikythera mechanism is asking questions. Now, that's really early AI. <laughs> Basically, uh, what I meant to say is Facebook product is users' attention sold to advertisers. Right. Bugs in our cognitive system are exploited by Facebook, resulting in warped reality bubbles that threaten society writ large. Can each discuss... WRT, capitalism, socialism. With regard to capitalism. Oh, thank so. you. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's what WRT means. The, you know, I guess I would have said that with re the, the clearest case is state socialism versus capitalism. It's less clear in, in, in Ben's system. And that is that in the capitalist system, the decisions you make are mostly decisions where you get the consequences. If you choose to work for an employer who treats you very badly, you will have an unpleasant employment. If you choose to buy food that doesn't taste good, you will eat it. So as a general rule in the capitalist system, you have an incentive, though not a perfect incentive, to try to get accurate information. Compare that to a political system where if I vote for the wrong person, the chance that that will determine the, that will result in that person getting elected is something like one in a million or one in two million in a country the size of this. If somehow I make the right decision 
that will produce a large benefit that is benefit shared with 330 million other Americans. So in general, in the political mechanism, individuals do not have an incentive to behave rationally when it costs anything. Whereas in the private one, they do have such an incentive, which does not mean they are perfectly rational. Now, workers co-op is gonna be in between because in the workers co-op, when I, as an individual, I'm trying to decide, should I vote for buying that new gizmo that they say will let us, our workers co-op produce stuff better? I now, I'm in a much smaller polity than the US, and if the workers' co-op is eight people, that's probably going to work pretty well because I'm going to say, yes, indeed, if I figure it out and a couple of my ladies figure it out, we'll get it or not get it. Uh, and if we make or lose money as a result, we'll all be better off. But if you're talking about a workers' co-op of 10,000 or 50,000, a workers' co-op equivalent of Walmart, say, which would be a good deal bigger than that, now each worker knows that he has very little incentive to get well-informed and therefore is likely to be more irrational. So I think it's a problem exists in both. It is a problem which is much worse in the state socialist version and somewhat worse in Ben's socialist version. Thanks so much. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, so the original question I thought was about uh, Facebook uh, and uh, and the things that they, they do to uh, to make their, uh, their product uh, more, uh, more addictive. Uh, which uh, and, uh, and and I would say that uh, if we have a collective uh, ownership of, so, of social media companies, uh, then that usefully uh, removes uh, you know removes a lot of those uh, those incentives. That's one good reason to do it. Another good reason to do it is to protect uh, users uh, users' free speech because the incentives uh, that the uh, the current owners have. Uh, to uh, to do that are clearly not working out uh, as uh, as predicted. Uh, whereas we can look at the actually existing public sector and see that uh, that free speech is vastly more secure there right now than it is uh, than it is in the uh, in the private sector. If you work for a public university, somebody fires you for your politics, uh, then uh, then you can take legal action and get your job back. Uh, if you work for a non-unionized private firm and the same thing happens to you, by and large, you are out of luck. But if somebody doesn't hire you for your politics, you have no recourse in practice. And that is a normal situation in both the private and the public universities, uh, I, I, I am afraid. Uh, but well, the there, 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 is a, there is a germ of truth to that. I mean, there is a reason why economics departments uh, uh, tend to uh, tend to exclude people uh, you know, who have... Uh, who have socialist views because you know because because they do they do why Abba Lerner when when I met up when I met Abba Lerner he was an employee of a university I don't remember if it was private or public I was giving a talk on my first paper and he asked a very made a very intelligent point and I later discovered that was Abba Lerner so a economist who actually is a good economist which Lerner was although I disagree with his politics can indeed get a job and I think you will find that it is. That, that on the whole, academic departments uh, shift way left of the population in general, not as far left as you would think uh, they should because you're in favor of truth and farther left than I think they should because I'm in favor of truth and we happen to have a small disagreement on what's true. Uh, well, well that, 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 is, that, is, that is one. I don't think that establishes Just, that it's not a problem. We uh, will jump to the next one from Dear Will, thank you for your question, says Dr. Burgess, as someone else who lived in South Korea for 13 years, how is an optional insurance savings account for preventative care funded by worker 
and business a socialist system. The money paid in belongs to the person. Uh, it sounds like there are 13 years in Korea where before it be before it adopted its uh, its current system. I'd be very curious about the uh, the dates there. Uh, you know, Korea right now. Uh, I know it's a relatively recent development. I think in the 90s, maybe even later. Uh, but uh, Korea, in the uh, in the time uh, that that I lived there, uh, has a has national health insurance that every single person uh, gets. Not only citizens, but people there on uh, on work visas. In fact, people there, uh, like my wife was at the time, on non-work visas, uh, you know, still uh, still get a national health insurance uh, insurance number. So uh, I think the questioner's information is out of date. Is the health care, in fact, provided by the government, or is it only insurance that's provided by the government? Uh, it's uh, it's ins insurance is provided by the government. There may be nationalized hospitals. There may be a mixture, but it's certainly not all nationalized hospitals. There are definitely private hospitals in Korea. Because I think it's the case in general, Izzy. I think England and Canada are exceptions, but I think that most of the systems that are thought of as having government health care, the health care is largely, though not entirely, private. Uh, but there is some version of, of, of health insurance which covers some but not all things depending on the country. I, I mean, it, it varies. It varies wildly. You know, you, you yes. have uh, you know you have certainly uh, Scandinavian countries, for example, where uh, where you have uh, there are some private hospitals, but the vast majority of hospitals are uh, are, are are publicly owned, uh, and even in even in some countries where you do have private hospitals, uh, if the government is, you know, government is footing the bills, so the bill and those, those hospitals are nonprofits, it's a very different kind of situation than in the United States where it's normal for a hospital to be owned by a bank. I think actually my guess is that a majority of hospitals here are also nonprofitable, certainly not all of them, but that would be an empirical question we would have to settle, which I don't know. Well, let's take another question. Jump in from uh, Gartham. Thanks for your question. Says, as a machinist and as a machinist who has worked with robots, there's benefits to new automation. It makes processes efficient for a large population, reduces physical stress, and creates a higher skill of labor for better pay. No threat here. I think that's for you, Ben. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, if, if the claim is just that uh, that automation, you know, automation has winners, then, then uh uncontroversial uh that there there are you know that there are lots of people you know for for whom it has benefits uh it's it's certainly not uh that's certainly not exclusively the case that uh, that there are winners there are also under the current system at least uh lots of uh losers an argument that futurists uh will often have with each other is whether as even plenty of very libertarian you know uh you know silicon valley types believe uh you know you're going to get a long-term uh, structural unemployment caused by automation in the future, or whether, as many people uh, who dispute this think, uh, that you know it's as uh, some you know as some work that's done by humans is automated away, new things always open up, and it always balances out uh, in the uh, in in the end. And all I would say about it is, whoever you think is right in that empirical argument, right? Whoever's predictions you think are right, uh, it's uh, it's still the case that you have a problem that when the machines are privately owned, uh, you have this, uh, this incentive to say, oh, great, uh, you know, we, we can, you know, we can hire, uh, you know, few, you know, we can, we can have fewer employees, we can get rid of a lot of them, uh, or, you know, reduce our labor costs in other ways, like making people, you know, cut down part time, whereas the hope would be 
uh, that in an economy where worker, workers' control was uh, was predominant, that it could be caused to know, that it could be uh, that it could be handled uh, in uh, in other ways. Also, I would I would just uh, I would just point out that whoever you think is right, this problem exists because either you're going to uh, get the worst thing, which would be long-term, you know, unemployment. So under capitalism, the best you can hope for is, you know, the modern equivalent of bro Roman bread rations, the form of gang bucks or something, or uh, you can have, uh, or at best, new stuff opens up, but you still have a lot of dislocation and misery in between. You bet. Thank you very much. And then next up, uh, we're a anyway, little... I wanted, I wanted to comment on, on that question too, because the problem is that under Ben's system, it's, there are still going to be losers because there are going to be some workers co-ops which are specialized in producing a particular kind of good. They are specialized in producing the tools for hand production of things that are now being done by robots. So that in, in his system, if I understand it, because it's not a straight social state socialist system where everything is a pool that the government distributes. It's a system, if I understand it correctly, in which each worker's co-op is supported by what it sells its goods for to consumers. I think that's what he he's describing. And if it turns out that some workers' co-ops now adopt the new technology, and the result of that new technology is that other workers' co-ops find there are no customers what they were producing, then you are again going to have losers as well as winners. That's a, a case in either case. Yeah, the question is whether uh, whether you're going to have as many losers uh, and uh, or, or whether uh, with a different system, with a different structure, uh, you know, you could have vastly few, you know, vastly fewer. I'm certainly not going to argue that it's going to be all, you know, sunshine and unicorns and nothing bad is ever going to happen as a result of technological but change. I, I would argue that you have many more losers because I think your system is much less flexible, but that would be a long argument. That is to say that the workers co-op is going to be less willing to release workers who would then go to others' workers co-ops in part because when they workers co-ops leave, they lose their share ownership of the, of the, of the capital assets of that co-op. But that would be another long argument. We uh, will jump to this next one from Brendan Langle. Thanks for your question, Brendan. It says, in libertarian socialism, there are no legal codes preventing capitalist models, but you likely won't find anyone willing to work for exploita exploitative wages. Read David Graeber's parable of the divided aisle. I don't know what exploitative wages mean. But I have no objection to a system in which people choose to organize themselves in workers' co-ops. As long I, I do object to their saying everything anybody's done before now belongs to us and gets confiscated. But uh, as far as I can tell, part of the attraction of a market is that it is open to everything from the pure market form of individuals contracting with each other all the way up to the hierarchical structure of something like Walmart and all the way up or down or sideways or something to a workers' co-op. Those are all consistent, but they're consistent under rules in which if you want to get money from people, you've got to offer them something they're willing to pay you for. And if you want to get workers to work for you, you've got to offer them better terms than anybody else does. Josh, yeah, thanks for your question. This one coming in from Huckleberry. I would, I would just, just momentarily here say once again, I think, I think the question about um, – I think the question about competition uh, and uh, and having uh, reintroducing uh, wage labor, I think, is structurally similar to uh, to the questions about uh, minimum wage laws, sexual harassment laws, and the numerous other ways that civilized societies prohibit certain uh, employment contracts. Now, 
uh, whether it would be necessary to so prohibit it or not is an empirical question, uh, but, uh, but whether there's anything wrong in principle uh, with, uh, with prohibiting certain kinds of abusive labor contracts, uh, I, I, I'm just, I, I see no reason whatsoever to put this in a different category than those other cases. Another question. Thank you very much. Gartham asks, they say, in my work, we can invest in company stock with a discount over time, giving ownership and an incentive to dedicated employees over time. Is this better than a co-op? I sorry, like, like, uh, I mean, I can give my response. I wasn't sure who, uh, uh, I would say no. Uh, and, uh, and my reason, uh, my reason for thinking no, uh, is, uh, is that if you have uh, partial, uh, you know, in, uh, employee, uh, employee ownership, uh, then that's certainly not going to have all of the benefits of, uh, of, of worker, uh, of worker ownership, uh, especially if, you know, different employees are, you know, or owning different chunks of it. Uh, and even if you have a case where a, uh, an entire company, uh, is owned by like an ESOP an employee stock ownership, uh, ownership plan, uh, then um, this is an improvement in some ways on standard firms, uh, but if it's not organized uh, as a uh, as a worker co-op, then your day-to-day -day experience at work uh, is, uh, is 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 going uh, is going to be the same. So I would say, company is entirely owned by the employees. Then all of your arguments about why it can't become a workers co-op go away. They already own all of those capital assets. So if you, you, you believe, you hope that you can persuade the population of the U.S. to make this massive political change, but you don't believe that you can, can persuade a majority of the employees of a company where it's all uh, stock ownership to simply reorganize their company in what you believe is a much superior fashion. That seems a little bit striking. Yeah, I, I mean, wanna... it would be strange if I if I believed that or if I said it. I don't think I expressed any prediction, any view one way or the other about that. I just I just said that if they don't make that change, then uh, they're, they're disadvantaged. But, but but if you're right, then they would make the change. You're just you you're saying that uh, anyway. Let's so, so, so well, I mean, I just because I, I want to just because Dr. Uh, Friedman yielded on the last one, I want to give uh, Dr. Friedman the last word on. But let's see, Huckleberry Huckleberry Sin said. Dr. Burgess, can you explain how a social program that works with 50 million people can work with 350 million people or even a billion people? Yeah, so this is the uh, this is the scaling uh, the scaling up uh, objection, uh, and uh, and I think it is interesting to uh, to note uh, that if uh, if Dr. Friedman is right, and in uh, one of the very first things that he said about how, uh, how top-down forms of planning uh, are most effective at very small scales and become you know, less and less effective uh, as you scale up, uh, then that should mean that the, uh, the more people that you're talking about within a firm, uh, the, uh, the, the more advantageous it should be to organize it as a cooperative rather than to have- No, to organize as a market. Internally, the, the alternative I'm offering is not your co-op because your co-op also has scaling problems. The alternative I'm offering is that everybody is contracting with everybody else, buying and selling. It was called the inside contracting uh, policy in the 19th century. It has serious limitations, which is why many things are not done that way. But the basic argument on scaling is that centralized control whether centralized control through democracy or through uh, a boss or either in between scales badly. 
markets scale well. There are, however, some enterprises for which the transaction costs of working through a market are high. And for those enterprises, you build up the hierarchical system until you reach the point where it is now where the inefficiency of additional hierarchy balances the inefficiency of the costs of doing it on the market. That's Coase's theory of the firm. You should read it. It's a good article. If you, th if you, th if you think that internal markets within firms uh, are a good idea, I would recommend looking into the history of Sears. Gotcha. And I also recommend, folks, you that wasn't look... What I was, I'm not talking about internal markets. I'm talking about the situation where the firm can either make its own tires for its cars or buy tires. Also want to recommend you check out the links of our guests, folks, which are in the description. We've got just a few more questions. We cannot take any more questions because we're uh, we, we really want to wrap this up quickly. So this one coming in from, appreciate it, THFC Rants says... For the question on Korean health insurance, they said, not correct, Dr. Burgess. As of today, 99% of Korean hospitals are private. If you don't pay into your account, you get zero care. The care only covers outpatient services and small inpatient systems. It also only covers a percent of care. Uh, so the, uh, let me... Uh... Let me just uh, just see. So they so I heard two claims there, one of which was relevant, uh, and another one of which uh, was uh, was irrelevant. So one of which was about the hospitals being private, which is a separate question from whether uh, the uh, the insurance uh, is uh, is is private uh, is private or not. Uh, so uh, I know. Um, I, I know that the uh, that it is it is a much more centralized and consolidated national health insurance system. So I see here in 2000, the National Health Insurance Insurance Service uh, (NIHS) was founded to combine all health insurances into a single national health insurer. Uh, as to uh, as to the you know the funding mechanism uh, for uh, for that, uh, then you know that it's 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 possible that I uh, that I that I stand corrected there. Uh, but uh, but I do know that even if you're in Korea on a non-work visa, you're automatically assigned an insurance number within that national health insurance system. Gotcha. And this one from William says, Dr. Burgess, last question of the night. And they say, Dr. Burgess, how do you protect the rights of the minority in your economic system? If there are none, how is this moral? Well, I'm not sure which... Uh, which minorities uh, we're uh, you know we're, we're concerned with here? So uh, if the uh, if the majorities that, that we're concerned with are uh, are are racial minorities uh, or, or religious or ethnic minorities, uh, then uh, then I would argue that the track record of uh, of capitalism in correcting historical inequities, uh, for, you know, facing those those groups is uh, is very very bad. Uh, and uh, and that I, that any move towards uh, increased uh, society-wide economic inequality uh, would uh, would be very helpful there. Uh, if the uh, if the concern is like ideological minorities, somebody being snuffed out, uh, you know, do you know like I think that given that anybody can found uh, can found a worker-controlled firm that they want to, you know, as they, they convince other people to uh, to go in on them with it. Uh, I'm not sure where that concern arises uh, within, uh, you know, within the sort of feasible socialism being described. If the minorities that we're concerned about uh, is the uh, is the minority of the uh, of the population uh, that uh, that currently uh, employs most of the rest of the population, then yes, it's a well-founded concern. But that's not a minority uh, that I stay up night at night worrying about. 
concussion. <laughs> Want to say, folks, our guests are linked in the description. Folks, it doesn't end here. Hopefully, this is just the start where you now go to their links at the very top of the description. Click them, and you can read and hear plenty more from our guests. We really do appreciate them. We want to say thank you very much, Dr. Friedman and Dr. Burgess. It's been a true pleasure to have you. Thank you for hosting thank us. Our pleasure. And so I will be back in just a moment with a post credit scene where I'm just going to basically let you guys know what upcoming debates there are as we're very excited about the future. And so... I will be back in just a moment. Keep sifting out the reason. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save 